Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer again. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that uh, the, the temperature warms up and we, we get these uh, summer season uh, to celebrate, and yet it means so many changes for so many of us. Uh, it means vacations for us. It means uh, time off work for educators. It means uh, time off from schoolwork for students. And as our rhythms get shaken up, we know that sometimes we uh, lose track of what's most important. Would you help us to be a people that prioritizes you, prioritizes our commitment to following Christ, even through all of the changes that summer tends to bring? Make us more faithful to you during this season. As we struggle to have rhythms of studying your word, would you strengthen us to be consistent Bible readers? As we struggle to find consistent times to go to you in prayer, would you help us to be a praying people? As we're tempted to get into rhythms of bad sleep, would you help us to be people who are still faithful to the work that you have given us to do and the relationships you have put into our lives, that we might take care of ourselves and honor you with our bodies. And Father, we pray that as we uh, are more, or we're outside more, as we are in nature more, as we are walking the streets more and walking our dogs more and, and taking hikes and, and eating meals outside, that you would make us a people that is not ashamed to open your mouth, open our mouths to speak your words to those in need, those we haven't seen for so long because of COVID. With this opening up of our um, skies and, and our lives uh, pour out into an opening of gospel witness that many may hear and know that you are God and there is no other. Open our hearts to hear your word this morning and help me to preach it faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are continuing in a series in the book of Titus in the New Testament. So if you want to turn, click, swipe, tap to Titus chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there should be one under your pews, and don't hesitate to use that table of contents. It's a short book, and uh, we'll be in Titus for a couple more weeks. Uh, there are sermon cards at the back that let you know what we're going to be preaching on from week to week so that you can read ahead, follow along with us. We want you to do that because we want you to check what we say against God's Word, whether it's me preaching or whether it's someone else. We're in the back half of chapter 2 of Titus, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify 
for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What separates Christianity from other religions? We could talk theology, our doctrine of God. We believe that there's one God and three persons, the Trinity, and that's unique in world religions. And we can argue that Christianity teaches God's nature and personality different than any other religion. We could talk uh, anthropology, our, our doctrine of human beings. We believe that human beings are created in God's image to reflect him and to worship him and, and, and to reign under him. Each person having incalculable, incalculable value. We could talk about hamartiology, our, our doctrine of sin. We, we believe that sin is rebellion against the good and perfect rule of God and that it corrupts our nature and, and that as a result, creation has been cursed. And so we deserve a frightening judgment for our infinite crime. We could talk about eschatology. We could talk about our doctrine of last things, the end times. We believe that Jesus will judge the living and the dead and there will be a new creation, a restored heaven and earth in which God's people dwell with him forever. And we could go on and on with examples of how our beliefs are unique among religions celebrated in the world. And I, I think that our beliefs are uniquely beautiful because they're true. But last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 2 of Titus, and there was a laundry list of ethical demands for Christians. Paul instructed Titus how to teach the residents of Crete to live as Christians, knowing that different people and different social groups might have different challenges and might have different obligations. But you might come away with a passage like that that's sort of this, 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 and not this, not this, not this, not this. And you come away from it thinking that Christianity is very similar to other religions. Maybe Christians have some different ethics on this matter or that matter than another religion, but all religions put ethical demands on their followers, you think, and, and that's true. I think Christian ethics are more radical than the ethics of other religions. But I'll set that aside for a moment. Christianity has ethical expectations, moral expectations of its followers, of its adherents. And those ethics can sometimes be codified as a list of do's and don'ts. But this passage this morning points us to something that's very unique about Christian ethics. Other religions say, do this, and don't do this, so that you can be right with God. Willpower. Buckle up. Get it done. But Christianity grounds its ethical demands somewhere else. Christian ethics are rooted in the gospel. And the gospel or the good news, as we sometimes say, changes everything. 
Paul points to three facets of the gospel that shape the way Christians should live and closes with a, a coda of what to do with this information. So let's dig in. The passage begins, for the grace of God has appeared. That word for connects it back to our last section, at a minimum, maybe into chapter 1 as well. But what, what Paul is giving here is the grounds or the justification for all of the ethical demands of verses 1 through 10 about Christians living self-controlled lives and sober lives and, and avoiding slander and, and being full of faith and of hope and of love and so much more. And the grounds for this radically new way for Christians to live is the appearance of the grace of God. But what does Paul mean by that? Well, two things give us the answer. First, this, this grace is something that is bringing salvation to all men. And second, it's something that's training us. So in some sense, it's, it's something that existed beforehand, but then at some point later appeared, became visible, became known, was revealed. What happened in the past that brought salvation and taught us a new way to live? The incarnation of the Son of God. The life of Jesus of Nazareth, which began in the womb of a virgin named Mary and, and, and in its humanity temporarily ended on a cross outside of Jerusalem, but now continues on eternally in his resurrection and ascension to heaven. Here's how the Apostle John put it in his gospel. I'm just going to read from the beginning of the, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's a little bit longer than I normally read as an example, but part of John's point there is that Jesus was the revelation of God's glory and grace. The Son of God, or the Word, as John calls him, is eternal. He existed from the beginning. He has always been gracious, but God's gracious plan for salvation was not fully understood or fully known until the appearance of Jesus Christ. But that's the heart of God's grace, God's undeserved favor. Salvation for all people. When Paul says that this grace brings salvation for all people, he doesn't mean that God's grace makes salvation available to every single person. At least that's not his emphasis here. He means that God's grace doesn't discriminate. It does, in fact, save every sort of person. All the different groups that he mentioned beginning of the chapter, the old man, the old woman, the young man, the young woman, the, the, the free, the slave... Whatever category of person you think you fall into, God's grace is available to you also. It saves even Cretans and Jews and Romans and barbarians and people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. God's grace did not merely appear to save some Jews. It appeared in the person of Jesus to save all sorts of people, whatever their background, whatever their identity. In his life and teaching, Jesus taught his followers how to live, or as Paul puts it, trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, I'm not going to sit on each one of those words, uh, ungodliness, worldly passion, self-controlled, upright, godly lives, because we did that a lot last week. And there's some overlap between the passages, and I, I don't want to be redundant. But I think the basic idea is pretty clear. Living as Christians means turning our back on one way of living so that we can embrace a new way of living. In a sense, that's the basic idea of this Bible word, Repentance. One of the key Bible words that we translate as repentance has a literal meaning of turn around. And the idea is that we are living our lives opposite to God and his good rule, and we are running away from him, but now we have turned around to run toward him, to follow after him. We can't travel east and west at the same time. Similarly, we, we cannot continue on an evil path and follow Jesus teaching at the same time. Doing one means abandoning the other. Jesus trains us in both his example and in his teaching. He taught us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. When he resisted temptation in the wilderness for 40 days, when he resisted the desire to come down off the cross or to avoid it altogether. 
The author of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus became our high priest in that he bridged the gap between human beings and God. And he puts Jesus' temptations this way. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus showed us how to resist sin and the passions of this world. He also taught a lot on that subject, didn't he? He didn't just show us, he taught us. We might look at his famous Sermon on the Mount, where he taught us that we should prefer radical surgery over hell in the battle against sin. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. But in that same sermon that he gave, he taught us how to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives, didn't he? He said, blessed are the meek, not the powerful. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the conquerors. Love your enemies. Pray with simple humility. Forgive generously. And his life was full of that fruit. He healed a man who came to arrest him. He asked the Father to forgive those who crucified him, for they know not what they do. He cared for the outcasts who had been rejected by society. And so if you want a master class on Christ-centered living, then look to the life and teachings of Christ in the Gospels. Look to him as our model and as the one who went before us. More than anything, though, is probably the fact that Jesus taught us what love is when he gave his life for sinners who had rebelled against him. People who had rejected him. People who hated him. As Paul himself put it in Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we talk about the gospel as the good news that God saves sinners. That's true, and that is wonderful news. But it's not the whole gospel. Because the gospel begins with an eternal Son of God who existed from the beginning, through whom everything in existence was created, to whom we properly owe our allegiance, but whom we rejected. But then, when all hope was lost, when we were dead in our sins, deserving God's wrath, grace appeared. The Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us and lived a life of righteousness we didn't understand and couldn't have lived out even if we had understood. Jesus is our tutor for how to live lives pleasing to God. And without him, living this life would be hopeless. But with his leading and his example, we have something to follow. 
There's another facet of the gospel that we need to consider, though. It's not merely that Jesus, as the embodiment of God's gracious plan of salvation, appeared in the first century. That would be inspiring, to be sure. But, you know, it's very difficult to do anything that's hard for very long unless we have a clear vision of where we're going and what we want to accomplish. We need a clear endpoint for our struggles. The Christian calling is a life of radical ethics. And since those ethics are not always agreeable to this world or even to the passions inside our own hearts, we face this constant battle being attacked from within and from without to abandon the project and to give up on following Jesus altogether. It's not easy to follow Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking of literal hate in the sense of strife and bitterness. But he was talking about hate in the comparative sense of renouncing everything the world has to offer in order to take hold of the one thing that does matter, Jesus. But that's still a pretty stiff demand, isn't it? In fact, he promises his disciples that one of the costs of following him is persecution. I can tell you to pick up a 100-pound barbell and, and take it across the room, and, and, and that's well and good. But if I tell you to take that 100-pound barbell on your shoulders across the full 2,200 miles of the Appalachian Trail without letting it down, well, that's a wearisome task, and I suspect you might give up on it. If I'm going to persuade you to do that, you're going to have to need a, a vision of what's on the other side of that journey for you, and that vision is going to have to be big enough to captivate you for the full five to seven months that you take that hike with all your normal gear on top of this completely useless and awkward 100-pound weight that was not designed to be carried over any great distance. Maybe if I told you there's a million dollars in it for you when you finish, that would be enough motivation. Maybe you need five. I think a lot of people would get halfway through with a million dollars in mind and still give that up. Maybe five million dollars and the, the vision of just how great of shape you'll be in when you're done will be enough to motivate you through. But you need a big vision to do something like that, don't you? The Christian life requires an enormous vision. And we're given one. Paul writes, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live out this renunciation of ungodliness 
and this embrace of godliness in the context of waiting. This is anticipatory waiting, like, like a young child waiting for Christmas morning to open the presents under the tree, or like a high school senior waiting for graduation to be free from school, or like a bride-to-be counting down the days to her wedding. That There is something so incredibly good that's about to happen, and it's absolutely sure to happen, that it feels like the anticipation itself might kill us, but it actually keeps us going. It keeps us motivated. It keeps us pushing forward, knowing that very soon it will be here. And that very good thing is what Paul calls our blessed hope. And its contents are another appearance. It's the second appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus promised and his followers wrote that he will return again, uh, this time in glory, this time to judge the living and the dead, to put away evil and death and sadness forever. Paul wrote about that day in his letter to the Christians living in uh, Thessaloniki. Uh, This is what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. John, again, wrote to the churches in ancient Turkey uh, about a picture, a vision he saw of what that day will be like in Revelation chapter 7. There John wrote, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is just a snippet of what we have in store for us. It's an incredible vision of a new heavens and a new earth and an eternity dwelling in the presence of the triune God, Father and Son and Spirit. It's a vision that can capture the heart of even the most tired and weary saint burdened with life's tribulations and heartaches. It's why Jesus taught us in 
what we call the Lord's Prayer, to ask the Father, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because if you understand what that means, you know that it's relief from the weights of this world. It's our burdens finally being lifted. It's the end of evil, the triumph of God's righteousness. It's the return of the tree of life along the refreshing banks of the river of God. It's perfect peace. I think it's no accident then that Paul refers to it as the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now you can stick this one in your file folder when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door because this clearly calls Jesus Christ our great God. Now their Bible translates it incorrectly, so to defend it, you might need a little bit more background information on why their translation is wrong. Let me know. We'll talk about it. I'll help you out. It's not that, not that complicated. But I'm not going to go into that right now. For now, I want to just emphasize that Paul calls Jesus Christ both Savior and great God, who will appear with glory. We confess that in the ancient creeds, and we confess it because Jesus taught us they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. See, it's appropriate for Paul to call Jesus our great God here because it's precisely in Jesus' second coming, his coming with glory to judge the living and the dead, that his deity his godness will be on full display. In the old Christmas carol, we sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, behold the incarnate deity. But on that day, the glory of God will no longer be veiled, but will burst forth from his raised and ascended body. That's going to happen. It's really going to happen. And, and as Paul writes in, in, in 1 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. That's what he calls life. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That unseen, eternal vision keeps us fighting for holiness, keeps us killing sin until the last trumpet sounds. That, too, is part of the gospel, that Jesus has been crowned king of all, and he is returning to reign forever. Paul has a third facet of the gospel he wants to impress upon Titus and jumps off from that mention of Jesus Christ. He's, he writes, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, un, all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now, there's two parts to that statement, one which you are hopefully very familiar with, uh, but the other, 
I suspect you're less familiar with. When Paul says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, here's the gist. And this part, I assume if you've been with us for a little bit, you hopefully know this well. Jesus offered his life in the place of sinful human beings. He is a substitute. He redeemed. He ransomed. He paid the price that was necessary to secure the release of sinners from their enslavement to sin. To to secure the release of sinners over whom the sword of God's perfect justice hovers purposely from all unlawlessness. Not some. All. Every sin. Every wicked deed. Every wretched thought. All of it can be redeemed. All of it is redeemed for the us. Who's the us? That us refers to Christians, of course, those who have turned to Christ in faith and repentance. And that's the heart of the gospel, the good news that I hope you have memorized and you can recite in your sleep that Jesus died in the place of sinners so that sinners can go free. How? By trusting in him and turning from their old way of life. That's the heart of it. And if you're in that number, then he did that for you. He did that for us. And that is wonderfully good news. It is great news. But look at that second part. Jesus gave himself to redeem us, and he gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We often focus on what the gospel means for us, for me. But there is a God who is the most important most beautiful, most exquisite being in existence. And would he merely act for, his, or for our own benefit? Or to put it another way, wouldn't we expect that the greatest good in the universe be to expand the interests and the glory of this beautiful being we call God? Paul doesn't want us to have an egocentric gospel. He doesn't want us to have a self-centered gospel. Because that would be a short-changed gospel. That would not be the full picture. He wants us to have a Christocentric gospel, a Christ-centered gospel. Jesus himself has an interest in your salvation. It's not just about you. He is creating a pure people, a people for his own possession. And he's not just creating a bunch of individual pure persons. He's creating a pure people, 
collective, a group. This phrase, uh, a people for his own possession, it's a little bit of a tricky phrase to translate it, so you'll see it different in different Bibles. But it goes back to an Old Testament phrase for what God designed Israel to be. So in places like Exodus 19.5, just before God gives the law and the Ten Commandments to the Israelites, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what Paul is getting at, is that Jesus is creating for himself a treasured possession. A group of people that serve together as a royal priesthood. They reign, but they also they, uh, mediate the way between God and man. They serve as priests because as we reveal God's truth, then we show people the graciousness of God and, and, and explain to them the gospel truth. We are showing them how they can be made right with God. That's the job of a priest. But now that the true Israelite, the perfect son of Abraham, has appeared, Jesus Christ, he is making a people who are purified by his word and by his spirit, doing himself what old Israel could never do by their own efforts. And so Jesus did not only die to save us from hell. He certainly did that, but he also saved us to be his special treasured people. And he saved us to be holy to be purified, and as he says, zealous for good works. He wants a people who are eager, who are hungry to do the good things that he has prepared for them to do. In the beginning, God created human beings to worship him and to serve him and to do his good work in creation. And now Jesus is recreating us bringing us back to our original calling and restoring us to what we had lost. That's what he's doing. This is his project. This is what we're here for. The third facet of of the gospel that Paul calls us to focus on is to remember what Christ did. For us, yes, but also for himself. And both of those things, what he did for us and what he's doing for himself, should be motivations toward holiness. Paul closes this passage with two sentences. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. They bring us back to the the big picture of this little letter. Titus was called to build up the churches on the island of Crete, in part by appointing pastors in in each church, but no doubt in in, in part by 
serving as something of a pastor to those churches during the time it took to find the right men for the job and get them installed. And so the beginning of chapter 2 started with this. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's chapter 2, verse 1. We looked at that last week. And we said that that word teach is actually just the word speak. Speak what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And then Paul gives a list of ethical instructions. And then he concludes with that same word. Speak these things. That word declare in verse 15 is the same word, speak. So he's talking about all of chapter 2. This, this kind of the, the front and back kind of envelope it, uh, package it. And maybe you might say that this goes back to the whole letter, but these are the things that Titus should speak. And while these things have a special importance for those who would be shepherds or those who would be elders, they don't end there. Because as we've seen already in this letter, these things are a model for all of us who aren't elders because the ethics of the previous verses, in verses 1 through 10, show us that Christians have a responsibility to each other as well and to help each other to grow in holiness. And, as we saw three weeks ago, the characteristics of an elder are really no different than the characteristics we want for any Christian. Pastors are not supposed to be super-Christians. They're supposed to be ordinary Christians doing things more or less correctly. And so what Paul says to Titus here has implications for you and for me if we are followers of Jesus Christ. So as we think about discipleship, as we think about growing one another in the faith, there are things that we need to speak. The gospel, the whole gospel, and everything it requires and points us to. Speak those things. Talk about those things. Let them shape our conversations. What is it that does shape our conversations? What is it that is first thing on our mouth when we sit down with someone we haven't seen for a while? What is it that we speak? There are very few things that Scripture commands us to speak. The gospel and all of its implications is one of those very few things. So let's let those things shape our conversations. Sometimes that speaking gets stronger and it moves into exhortation. Exhortation is pleading and persuading with people to live in light of the gospel and to believe the things of the gospel. When we are ignorant of some parts of God's Scripture and God's Word, or, or, or ignorant of some of the things that God demands for us, we need someone to tell us those things. And, and, and sometimes we need people to plead with us, grab us by the shoulders and lovingly shake us 
to life and help us to see that we need to better conform our patterns to Christ. Sometimes that speaking gets even stronger and moves to rebuke. Rebuke is exposure of sin or unbelief with the goal of correcting and building up, not tearing down. When Christians persist in sin, persist in unbelief, we have to call them to account. But from the gospel, not from our own pet peeves, as some of you know, we received a fun letter a couple weeks ago from a person who visited here and wanted to chew us out about his personal pet peeves of things that he didn't like here and, and how awful we were um, without one reference to God's word in that entire email, without one reference to God's holy demands. But he felt like he had the authority to rebuke us for being hospitable, for dressing in a way that is comfortable, or for speaking truths about God. Those are funny things to rebuke someone for. But when we Christians want to live faithfully before Christ, we do need to rebuke. And sometimes we see these examples of very judgmental people, very angry people, and we say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be characterized like that. I don't want to be seen that way. And that's fair. But the alternative is not not rebuking. The alternative is to rebuke with gospel love and charity, not to close our mouths. We need to know God's word and know what it demands. Take this log out of our own eyes, as we talked about this morning in uh, Sunday school, first. And then judge, as it were, with righteous judgment. Our speech needs to be full of gospel truth. So let us encourage or exhort or rebuke as necessary with gospel truth. And we do this with full authority. How? Because the gospel is God's. And his word is powerful. It's self-authenticating. It is its own authority. As the author of Hebrews writes, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Notice how the author of that, that letter could move so quickly from the power of God's word to no creature being hidden from his sight. 
God's Word speaks for God. And so when you are on message, you have God's authority behind you. And if you have God's authority trepidatious and get weighed down by the cares of this world. Don't let the one who despises you be you. Don't let the one who despises you be you. And what I mean is when you forget that you are God's, and that it's God's authority you carry. And you get in your head and you believe that you are nothing. You have bought into a lie. But when we remember that we are God's, it changes everything. Of course, Chris telling another person that the gospel is, is worthless if I come with my own authority. Of course. I dare not forget that I'm God's and that the gospel is God's message. And so it comes with God's authority. And when I say to myself, what am I or who am I that I could share these words? And I despise myself in that way. I'm despising God who gave that authority by his word. So let's have confidence in the God who calls us and what he has promised us. And Christian, let's get on with holy living. The time is short. This momentary affliction will not last. We have the example of Jesus' life, the ends of Jesus' redemption, and the shining hope just over the horizon of Jesus' appearance to keep us on that road. Let's pray. Father, though we are tempted to stray off that narrow road you have placed us on or called us to, Strengthen us by your spirit to walk with firmly planted feet. Knowing that you have revealed your saving grace to us. And we have confident hope that this difficult life will soon come to a peaceful and weightless climax. And that all the while in between, we have one, Jesus, our great God and Savior, who went before us and showed us the way. 
may we follow him and truly be his treasured possession. It's in his name we pray.